Welcome to the Political Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute. Each week, I feature a lively conversation with experts on some of the most important economic and policy questions of our time. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating and reviewing it on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. Ratings and reviews really help with the podcast visibility, and I always appreciate the feedback. Thanks, and on to the show. Should humanity spray Earth's atmosphere with calcium carbonate to cool the planet? How about using gene editing to combat invasive species? More broadly, what does it look like when humanity tinkers with the environment to try and fix the unintended consequences of past actions? Are such efforts forward-looking or reckless, unthinkable or inevitable? I'll be discussing these questions today with Elizabeth Colbert. Elizabeth is a Pulitzer Prize-winning writer at The New Yorker, as well as the author of several books, the most recent of which is Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, released this past February. Elizabeth, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. The title of the book is a reference to geoengineering. And, and as you know in the book, there are various experimental technologies being considered whether they're you know, about reflecting sunlight or moving carbon dioxide from the atmosphere in some way. And when I, was, when I was reading about them and thinking about them, it kind of, what popped in my head was sort of the end of the Cold War and Reagan's strategic defense initiative. Back then there were all sorts of ideas about how to create this anti-missile shield. We're gonna shoot like laser beams from, from, from Earth, or they're going to be these things called you know, brilliant pebbles, the anti-satellite weapons. And there's a lot of focus on the technologies. But the whole idea really signaled an end to the sort of Cold War status quo of mutual assured destruction. So is the fact that we're now talking about engineering the climate in some way, and these other adaptations you write about, does it signal an end to sort of the status quo in the environmental movement, or does it change it in some way that that we now we sort of need humans to be less risk averse and intervene more in the natural world. Well, I definitely think you know we're at a we're at sort of one of the points of the book is we're, we we we've jammed ourselves up. How's that? And the technologies that you talk about, and they are you're right that they are often grouped together under the rubric geoengineering, but I think they will be increasingly separated out and. On the one hand, we'll have carbon dioxide removal, which refers to, you know, getting CO2 that's already up in the air, out of the air. And then on the other hand, there are, um, there's solar geoengineering, which, which will refer to sort of techniques of literally blocking sunlight from, from, from hitting the earth. And for the former, for carbon dioxide removal, which is in itself still controversial in many ways, but I, I do think it's going to be increasingly discussed and tried. And the reasons for that are you know, pretty straightforward. And that is that we, we actually really need it. It's already sort of built into the, a lot of what the uh, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we don't need to go into a lot of technicalities, but anyway, this sort of international body that, that has been tasked with looking, you know, sort of trying to peer into the future. Um, these scenarios that they've devised for holding, trying to hold global temperatures from rising more than 1.5 or two degrees Celsius, which is, you know, that's, that's actually quite a lot. Uh, a lot of these, all of the 1.5 degree scenarios 
have already sort of built into them negative emissions, getting CO2 out of the air. And the vast majority of the two degree scenarios also have negative emissions built into them. So it's one of those weird cases where we've sort of come to rely on technologies or techniques because there are also theoretically ways to do it and practically too, I don't just mean theoretically to do it by you know planting trees using natural carbon sinks, but where we've come to rely on these techniques before we really uh, know how to put them into practice. So when environmentalists talk about, it seems like a lot of the focus is on things we need to do different sort of in uh, our everyday lives, uh, whether it's, I don't know, take, you know, take fewer, take fewer, you know, flights or uh, try to use less energy, a lot of focus on sort of efficiency. In the long run, does any of that matter? I'm also very skeptical about people accepting, you know, engaging in big lifestyle changes or accepting slower growth or, accept, or, or living simpler lives. Yet there still seems to be a lot of talk about those kinds of things. Is any of that really going to matter ultimately if they uh, sort of the magic asterisk of, uh, of, of geoengineering in some form, if those technologies don't work out? Well, I mean, what's going to matter profoundly matter is changing our energy systems. And the question of, you know, whether we can switch out, if we can switch out non-carbon energies for carbon emitting forms of energy and simply, you know, go on as we are now, um, or whether we need to combine, you know, to really reach these targets of net zero that many countries are now subscribing into and which are, you know, really fundamental to dealing with climate change. I, I can't stress this enough. Um, the, the atmosphere is sort of, it's often compared to a bathtub. Uh, and even if you slow carbon emissions, it, it's like if you slow the amount of water that's, that's going, pouring into a bathtub, but you don't stop it, the, the tub is still gonna overflow. And that, that's the same for, for our atmosphere and for, for climate change. If we don't really reach what is called net zero, uh, you know, we're gonna just keep, uh, the climate is gonna keep changing. We're gonna just keep warming up the world in perpetuity basically. And that is extremely uh, dangerous to contemplate. And you know, as you and I are speaking, uh, there's a very severe drought in the Western US. There's just a piece in the New York Times today about uh, how the drought is affecting the Pacific Northwest as well as the Southwest. And we're gonna just see more and more of these kinds of stories. So, you know, we, one can be skeptical of whether people want to change and certainly change their lives. And certainly I think that we haven't shown a great appetite for that, but change is coming at us. Uh, the climate is changing. There's just no getting around that. And at a certain point, if we don't, if we just decide to sort of throw up our hands and say, well, you know, we really don't want to change our lives at all. We don't want to change our energy systems at all. Uh, we're going to face massive changes of a different form. So it, the choice is, is, is unfortunately up to us at this point. So what do, uh, I don't know, professional <laughs> environmentalists or, or people might call, call themselves activists, what has been their response to your book? Well, I don't, I haven't gotten a particular, you know, a particular response in the book from, you know, a community. I kind of have to ask people who, you know, consider themselves climate activists. I, the book is kind of open-ended. It lets 
you know, you decide whether you find some of these technological fixes or uh, that are people are, are, are pushing or that are, you know, sort of on the horizon, whether you find these hopeful possibilities or very, very scary possibilities. Um, the book sort of- leaves Elizabeth, I, I'm, you know, I, I, I love technology. I have a great belief. I sort of think technology creates problems and then it helps us solve those problems and probably creates more problems in the solution. But I'm also a child of sort of the, you know, post Silent Spring in 1970s. And I've sort of watched, you know, a million scary dystopian movies and documentaries. So even though I love technology, my, when I hear about geoengineering and its forms, my first, I'll admit, my first impulse is always like, this is going to go wrong. <laughs> right? I mean, and I love that's technology. Probably but, healthy, that's probably a pretty healthy response. I mean, yeah. You know, and it, 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 it clearly isn't me. So the fact that there are certainly people, environmentalists who worry about this. Well, well, let me phrase the question like this. The people who are really like, this sounds like a terrible idea. What is their argument and what is their sort of alternative, you know, scenario? What do they want to do if not start, you know, engineering our climate? Well, I think that, you know, people who really oppose geoengineering or even any discussion of geoengineering and any research into geoengineering, that's what we're really talking about right now. We're not talking about doing geoengineering. We have no really good idea, to be honest, if it would even work. It's, it's pretty theoretical at this point. But people who say we shouldn't even do research into it would say it really distracts from the major issue at hand, which is you know, changing our energy system so that we no longer burn fossil fuels and no longer emit vast amounts of CO2 into the atmosphere. Now, the people who work on geoengineering, the scientists who say, well, we really ought to research it, they would also say we really, really need to reduce our emissions because if you, just continue to let emissions grow, then the amount of geoengineering you have to do, the amount of sunlight you have to block also continues to grow. And I think you know, pretty much everyone would agree that's not a tenable situation. So people who say we should be researching geoengineering say it's something that we could use potentially to buy some time, buy some more time to reduce emissions. But the ultimate goal, I think both groups would agree, has to be reducing emissions. Uh, the book isn't just about um, geoengineering. You know, the, you write a you write a, a number of you know sort of reported uh, sort of vignettes about efforts to sort of adapt. You know, the natural world. Uh, what if you just just give me a? And they're all they're all pretty super interesting. So what if you just you know pick a couple of examples and sort of what they taught you about the idea of adapting our world. Well, the book begins with kind of, I think, a very paradigmatic sort of vivid example, which is that uh, the Chicago River. So um, the Chicago River, you know, which runs right down the center of the of Chicago, which gets dyed green every year for St. Patrick's Day, kind of a much abused river. Um, it used to flow through Chicago east into Lake Michigan. And Chicago, you know, used the river as its sewage system basically for many years. And it was basically pouring its sewage into Lake Michigan, which is its drinking water source. So at the turn of the 20th century, uh, the Chicago River was reversed through this amazing construction project, perhaps the largest construction project of its day. And in the process of reversing the Chicago River, 
what happened was that, that you ended up connecting the Great Lakes and the Mississippi systems, which were previously distinct. And over the course of the 20th century, both of those systems became highly invaded bodies of water. Uh, and Asian carp, I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about this, uh, have heard about the problem of the Asian carp, which are actually several species, invasive species, moving up the Mississippi towards the Great Lakes. So one of the amazing things that we've done, these sort of interventions to counter previous interventions is the Army Corps of Engineers has actually electrified now part of the Chicago River or the, the, basically the canal that was built to reverse the Chicago River to try to discourage invasive species from crossing from one basin to the other. So that's a very, uh, that's something that we've actually done. Their Army Corps is also con considering because no one quite trusts this electric barrier, uh, they're considering a new barrier that'll cost close to a billion dollars. It will have bubbles and noise. It was described to me as sort of a disco barrier. So that is one example. Of, <laughs> yeah, one example of the kinds of uh, wonderful, you know, interventions to solve previous interventions in the book. Um, there's also, you know, a long discussion of, of gene editing, uh, which is a, you know, very, I'm sure most of your listeners have heard about CRISPR, which is this really revolutionary gene editing techniques made it much, much easier to transfer genes from one organism to the other, basically. And the question of, you know, we have many, many conservation problems, many, many species being driven to the brink of extinction for different reasons, owing to climate change, owing to invasive species. Um, are we going to now start tweaking uh, the genomes of creatures in an effort to um, protect them against these threats that we ourselves have introduced. I think that's on the horizon uh, in conservation. Do we look at these these sorts of th th this notion that we live in the world, we change the world, we can't, we, we're not going to stop that. Uh, so let's figure out the ways to adapt the world to what we're doing, and you know, keep moving forward. Is that how they deal with it? And uh, they think about things in other areas. Is that how they think about it? In Europe, for instance, or in other in other in other parts of the world, have you have you thought about that at all? Well, I, I think that's a really interesting question, and I think different cultures, different societies will have very different responses. You know, we in the U.S. tend to be, you know, pretty pro-tech. You know, we're we're kind of in love with technology, and that's sort of one of the themes of the book. And a bunch of these projects are in the U.S., but a bunch of them are not. I mean, I went to visit. Um, a project to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. This is, you know, happening right now with the pilot project. It's not a very, it's not, it's not going to make a significant dent uh, in, in, in climate change, but that's in Iceland and had, you know, a lot of EU money behind it. So I, I think that, you know, but for example, the Europeans are much more opposed to, for example, genetically modified organisms. Um, here in the U.S., we, most of our corn, most of our soy, it's, it's GMOs. Uh, the Europeans have really resisted that. So I think you will find different responses in different parts of the world. What do you think about American culture explains that? So sometimes I worry that we're too risk averse, even if we may be more uh, willing to take risks some other, some other places. Have you, have you thought about sort of why that is, that we seem to be more willing to think about these uh, technologies perhaps? Well, I think we've always been a very, you know, gung-ho, related, you know, the next big thing society and we've you know many of our fellow americans have become 
uh, you know, very, very wealthy off of inventing the next best thing. That's, that's what, sort of what we do best. And, and then we export it to the rest of the world if we, if we can. Um, so I think that our, in a, you know, very innovative, very creative uh, economy is, is, is the reason. Now we often do find then, you know, that, I mean, you're, you're saying that we're, that you think we're too risk averse. I think many people would, you know, make, make the opposite claim that we're, we actually tend to often deploy technologies only to later think, hmm, later find out the consequences and then have to try to sort of track down uh, who's responsible. And, and that's a huge, you know, um, legal morass. I read a lot about uh, AI when people discuss the, you know, the next great technology, it's going to be everything AI. It seems to me that we should be talking more about uh, CRISPR, both the risk and, and also the, uh, uh, the benefits. How significant of, as you've done your, you know, your reporting, how significant of a, of a technology is it? We're still sort of in the, uh, in the, in the early days, but um, where, where might that take us? Well, I mean, I think that it is very significant. I think that you're right. There probably should be more, more discussion of it because the possibilities that are opened up, I mean, they're not sort of qualitatively different. We were already able to do quite amazing things, you know, gene editing, it, but it, it's so much cheaper and so much easier. One of the things I do in the book is I bought a kit from a company out in Colorado, I'm sorry, California, uh, that allowed me in my kitchen to uh, gene edit a strain of E. coli, so a strain of bacteria to be uh, antibiotic resistant, okay? So any, any high school kid, can basically do that these days with the right tools. So we are, you know, entering into a, uh, you know, there's a lot of potential dangers here and people in the, you know, sort of bioweaponry uh, world are, you know, extremely concerned about what you can now cook up uh, pretty, you know, potentially much, much more easily than, than, than it used to be. Uh, you know, what could you do if you had evil intentions? That's, that's a very scary thing. That's, that's one whole subject. Um, but then there's the question of, you know, if you want to call it, you know, CRISPR for good. And people will have very, very different views about, you know, where we should take this. Um, it's going to be huge. It's already huge in terms of research. But are we going to take it the next step and let these genetically modified organisms out into the world? Are we going to genetically, you know, gene therapy, gene therapy for humans? I mean, you can theoretically and quite possibly practically, you know, gene edit human embryos. So you're getting into some, uh, and there was a case in China, you know, where a guy claimed to have gene edited twin girls. Right. We, we don't really know the truth there, but we are entering into, you know, you know, brave new world territory, absolutely. I suppose if I was sitting in front of the panel with the button that was going to let the uh, the gene modified you know mosquitoes out into the wild, I'm not sure that would be a very easy decision for me to press that button. Yeah, and I I want to say that that the other thing that CRISPR makes possible, and I, I do talk about this in the book, and I think it's a it's hugely on the horizon, and I don't know what we're going to do about it, uh, and I think it will require you know, it, it should be a very, very public conversation. And the gene editing mosquitoes that you're talking about, 
there you cannot you, nowadays you could gene you can gene edit mosquitoes and these mosquitoes exist they're sitting at a biosecure facility in italy that contain what's called gene drive so that a trait that you have gene edited gets passed down from generation to generation basically 100 percent of the time and that's done using crispr and it is an incredibly powerful technology. And you can use that. And the theory is that you could use that to create these mosquitoes that pass on some trait that makes them unable to reproduce. And you would pass that on from generation to generation until you had gotten rid of a whole population or potentially a whole species. And that opens up you know, vistas of human uh, intervention that are you know, once again, either heartening if you want to get rid of you know, malarial malaria-carrying mosquitoes or, or terrifying. It's easy, it's easy to see how it would uh, uh, be terrifying, obviously. So, that's, so what do you want, or do you have ideas about what you want policymakers to do? Like who is, <laughs> who is, making, all the, who is making all these decisions about when to hit the button to let out the, uh, the, the gene-modified mosquitoes? And who should be making those decisions? Well, I, I don't, I'll be frank and say, I don't really take that up in the book, but I think that one message that does come up in the book is we're not really, we don't really have the institutions to make these decisions. Um, we tend to go at things kind of willy nilly. And even when you think about it, you know, who, who could make those decisions, who would make them? the mosquitoes aren't going to necessarily stay within the borders of one country, right? So, you know, you need transnational uh, decision-making. We're, we're really not very good at that. So, you know, some of these um, technologies, they, they may get stopped in their tracks because we simply can't agree. Or one country might decide to go ahead, in which case, you know, your mosquitoes, you know, might also be eliminated. Um, or, or your whatever, you know, it sounds, doesn't sound as scary when it's mosquitoes, but it could be, you know, your squirrels. I don't really know, you know, um, because someone in another country decided to do this. And so it does raise, you know, just, I think the most profound uh, questions about our ability to manage our, you know, we're incredibly clever species and uh, our ability to manage our own, our own inventions, you know, there is definitely a, 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 a Dr. Frankenstein quality here. What about these, well, I guess what's called the degrowth movement that would seem to be very, they're very skeptical of economic growth. Uh, I imagine they'd also be skeptical of many of these, these interventions, but it seems to be a movement that at least uh, as I look at it, it seems to be gaining some uh, momentum. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think if you do, you know, if you do the math on our impacts on the world, um, it's very hard. You know, we have been in love with growth uh, for a long time, and economic growth has come uh, with great benefits to humanity and great cost to other species. And I think we have to be frank about that. Um, and so, the question of whether we can continue this you know, in perpetuity, when we live on a finite planet, there's a very famous uh, saying, you know, quote from, a, from an economist named Kenneth Boulding from the 70s, the only people who think you can have infinite growth on a finite planet are madmen and economists. Um, and I think that, you know, in, in this century, the course of this century, you know, I, I, I'm not going to be around for the end of it. Uh, 
not few probably not many of our listeners are, but we, you know, we're going to kind of uh, decide that question: is is this possible or or not, or or are the costs? And I don't mean uh, you know psychic costs. I mean you know physical costs. Can the can the planetary systems upon which we do still depend as as clever and as technologically advanced as we are, all of our you know, food is still basically coming from biological uh, systems. Can we continue, uh, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet? I, I think that's very, I, I personally think that that is unlikely. I don't think you can have infinite growth on a finite planet. It's just mathematically not possible. If we look back a hundred years from now and see that we've, uh, we've stabilized the climate in a way where in a you know in a, in a satisfactory way we'll say how do you think we ended up doing it? Well, that's a very um, that's a really good question. I think we ended up doing it by um, you know quite possibly sort of you know inventing technologies, some of which already exist. You know, the magic of a solar panel is pretty is pretty extraordinary and has gotten very very inexpensive. Um, by with some pretty impressive technologies that allowed us to produce energy by without producing carbon. And I do believe we're capable of doing that. Um, so I guess I do think that technology will play an important role in that. My guest today has been Elizabeth Colbert. Elizabeth, thanks for being on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. 